philosopher Giannis Delamitsos, whose books I confess I have not read, wrote, What is my personal history if not the heroic narrative created by myself in an attempt to inform myself about who myself is, assisted by my tactically biased and fickle memory? That about sums up my history with dogs and farming. Thanks, Giannis. Welcome to Farm Dog. This is Farm Dog, the podcast about the working dogs of farming, ranching, homesteading, and rural living. Farm Dog is presented by Goats on the Go, a national network of independent business owners who provide sustainable weed and brush control for their customers using goats. Want to put goats to work on your vegetation problem? Interested in launching your own goat grazing business? The place to start is goatsonthego.com. Welcome to Farm Dog. This is Aaron Steele, the host of the podcast. I am so glad you have joined us. And I just want to thank you for listening. It has been extremely rewarding to see that you folks are interested in hearing from the experts that we interview here on the podcast. And that there are other people like me that are total dog nerds who are really interested not just in dogs for the sake of having dogs. Pets are terrific, don't get me wrong but that are interested in working dogs, dogs that have a job. And in our case, we're talking about jobs that exist on farms and ranches and homesteads where we're actually making at least part of our living with the products that we produce on our farms and with the help of working dogs. I mentioned those experts. We have been blessed to have really good people on the show. Uh, Unfortunately, there will not be an expert today. It's just me. I had this thought that I have these guests on our show and I interview them and ask them for every detail about their backgrounds and how they got into dogs and what their farm is like and just tell us all about it. And it occurred to me that I had never done that for myself and so I allude to the dogs that I've had in the past or I allude to this situation on the farm or whatever in little bits and pieces and I've never really painted very much of a full picture for you. And so if you'll just humor me, that's what I'd like to do with today's episode is just kind of give you some background of where we've been with our farm and with farm dogs and where we're going and what we see the challenges have been, um, how we hope to overcome those challenges and to just kind of let you know it's not all been a bed of roses. There have been a ton of challenges for us And really, that's why I love talking to these experts, because I need help all the time. And I figured other people needed help, too. So we might as well record these conversations. So thank you for allowing me to um, be uh, a part of your drive home sometimes from work. Thank you for listening. And thank you for um, letting me just describe a little bit about our history here on the steel farm in central Iowa and where we've been and where we're going. So just to give you an idea of my background, I grew up with agriculture all around me and a generation removed from the family farm, but not actually on a farm. I was with what you would call in rural Iowa a town kid, um, not so much a city kid because there aren't a lot of big cities in Iowa, but uh, even in a relatively, you know, I was in a town of like 10 to 12,000 people Even at that size in Iowa, back in the 80s and 90s, you were still exposed to agriculture all the time. There's agriculture happening all around. And at that time, there were still a lot of farm families with farm kids. 
So we were just constantly aware that agriculture was a part of every decision that was made where we lived. So um, whether school would get canceled because of a snowstorm largely depended on whether we could get the farm kids into school safely or not. You know, uh, whether we would have practice on certain nights and how late those practices and rehearsals would go and how far we'd travel for, for sports and activities, that was impacted by whether or not we could accommodate the farm kids. Um, banking, loans, car dealerships, you name it, in our kind of like small regional hub in Iowa was impacted by agriculture at almost every turn. Now, over the years, of course, agriculture is still a significant player, but it's big farms often held by corporations, almost 100% row crop, corn and beans, with a few exceptions, some livestock being raised, but in uh, stockyards, feedlots, or confinement buildings. So we have cattle, chicken, hogs, um, turkeys, all that sort of stuff, but you never see them. They're always inside. And uh, we have some dairies also usually inside. So I know there are exceptions to that rule, but just to give you a picture of the landscape here in Iowa where I live, that's mostly what we're dealing with. Um, we have lots of people that live, as we would say here in Iowa, out in the country, um, but they are typically not farmers relying on agriculture for their incomes. Um, I would say probably of all the houses out here in the rural landscape, you know, maybe 70 to 80% of them are non-farmers that live in those houses now. Uh, so it's quite different. Um, and an operation like mine, a farm operation like mine is pretty unusual. We raise sheep and goats. Um, we, just to give you an idea how we got started with that, um, I loved bird dogs. I was fortunate enough to in my early career, spent some time working with other people who were into bird dogs. They gave me a great start. And that's where I really fell in love with dogs that had a job to do. And so when we moved out to a little acreage here near Ames, Iowa, we did it mostly because my wife actually did grow up on a commercial farm and she loved the idea of getting back to that kind of rural lifestyle. I loved the idea of raising dogs and having some birds for training dogs and being able to shoot a shotgun and not disturb anybody or get arrested. And so that was really our intent. But early on, we, we happened to get a handful of meat goats uh, because I wanted my sons to experience a little bit of what farm life was like. You know, I didn't have that experience day to day, but I got little bits and pieces of it. When I would go visit my aunt and uncle's farm, they raised actually a rarity in Iowa they had a cow-calf operation on pasture primarily um, as well as row crops so there was hay to be cut and baled and there were cattle to be moved around and um, those also you know like bottle calves to be fed and that sort of thing and that left a huge impression on me as a kid I never thought that I, I would actually um could possibly be a farmer in Iowa because I didn't inherit a bunch of farmland and farmland is super expensive here. Um, so that so when we got those meat goats, that wasn't really what I was thinking, but I wanted to give my boys a taste of it. And we fell in love with goats and I started kind of hatching a scheme for how I could expand a goat herd 
to a point where it was more than a hobby. It was actually bringing in um, income for us. And at the same time, you know, through hunting and fishing and just enjoying the outdoors, I had kind of a conservation ethic that I wanted to express with with my work, with my day-to-day um, commitments as well. And so that's where we started to get the idea for using goats for weed and brush control as a commercial service. Um, at the beginning of this podcast episode, as with at the beginning of every episode, you hear about Goats on the Go. That is our company. We started it in 2012 to provide the service of goat grazing to customers for weed and brush control. I started that business with a friend of mine who is in much the same situation, kind of a little hobby farm and a few side businesses, uh, but that hobby farm was not really producing a profit. And so we were both looking for ways to expand what we were doing, get into farming uh, at a commercial scale, and um, you know do that without giant, giant expenses. So we started building a goat herd uh, together, actually, he had his—he built his own goat herd. I built my goat herd from um, really the same seed stock, from the same ranches, the same places, but we maintained different populations as we expanded. Uh, Goats on the Go, as I mentioned, started in 2012. We just were overrun with demand, and so we couldn't build our goat herds fast enough. We were in growth mode uh, for a long time and uh, really enjoyed that and really enjoyed the dual revenue streams that came from the goat grazing business and uh, the meat goats themselves. Um, Over time, we had lots of people asking us for advice on how to start a goat grazing business. And so we developed an affiliate program. It's a bit like a franchisee program, but but not technically. Um, where we just help other folks get started and give them a huge head start with their own goat grazing businesses. We now have over 60 affiliates across the United States, uh, pretty much from coast to coast, but with concentrations here in the Midwest. And um, that kind of took on a life of its own. Uh, So a few years ago, I uh, bought out my business partner with whom I started the business he continues to run the local goat grazing operation as one of the central Iowa affiliates, we call those folks. Um, and I run the Goats on the Go brand and the recruitment of new affiliates. What that has allowed me to do is to think less about how do I grow enough, how do I grow my goat herd big enough to keep up with demand and more about just the farming side of things. So get to kind of analyze it Uh, the products of my farm, not just in terms of how do I meet the demand from these customers, but what makes the best mix agriculturally for being profitable. And uh, over time, that means I've started to shrink my goat herd a little bit, and we've really started to get into sheep. And I continue to raise those livestock with my friend. Uh, I keep saying my friend, but we actually talked to Chad in episode 49, Chad Steenhook is the guy I started the business with. So he uh, he continues to do the goat grazing business under the Goats on the Go brand, but I manage the larger brand across the country, and we raise livestock together. So uh, we've always been in a very mobile, portable sort of mode because our origins were starting with, you know, using meat goats to graze 
customer's properties uh, for as a commercial service. So we're always moving from place to place, um, loading trailers, doing uh, paddock rotations, using portable electric fencing. Um, and again, in an effort to keep our land costs low, we continue to do that. So even when we're not providing a commercial service for, for customers for weed and brush control, we are still uh, leasing land. We hardly own any land at all, but we are leasing land just to raise animals on, uh, just to go to market as an agricultural product uh, in the background. So that gives you a little picture of our farm. Uh, we have grown from tiny to a little less tiny, but still tiny in a, in, uh, from the viewpoint of say a Western ranch. Um, and we're doing it entirely on leased land for the most part. And it means that we are on the run a lot and we are leasing relatively small pieces of land in multiple locations. And so we started to worry about predators quite a bit. And we have a longstanding relationship with Greg Christensen, who has been on our podcast a couple of times. The first time was our very first episode. Some of our original meat goat seed stock came from Greg and um, you know Greg has this this kind of saying that he's extended to me a couple of times well here's the deal I I used to keep asking Greg probably about once a year when should I get livestock guardian dogs and he would always say something like nah you don't want them you don't want them at all if you can avoid it you don't mess with livestock guardian dogs unless you absolutely have to and then I would say, Greg, when do I absolutely have to? And he says, well, by the time you know that, it's too late. So you kind of need livestock guardian dogs. So I started a search for our first livestock guardian dog. I came across a gentleman who had several different breeds of livestock guardian dogs um, and you know, perhaps six or seven total himself. And he was scaling back his goat herd a little bit. So he had... Um, advertised that he had some puppies for sale. I, I called him up and the puppies had actually already sold. But after chatting with me a while, he said, you know, I've got this dog. She's just terrific, but she doesn't really fit into my breeding program anywhere. Uh, I think I might sell her if I know she's going to a good place. And I said, yeah, by all means, let's talk about it. And he said, well, her name's Mitty. Um, there's kind of a catch though. He said, she might be pregnant and I kind of lost interest very quickly but then started thinking about it well why not you know I've I guess I've never whelped a litter of puppies before and I, I that seemed intimidating to me especially because it came with the package of our very first livestock guardian dog but I said okay yeah, let's take a chance. So we bought Mitty, and sure enough, she turned out to be pregnant. Mitty was a mix of Anatolian Shepherd and several other breeds. She was black, oddly enough, um, but half of her eventual litter looked exactly like Anatolian Shepherds with the black mask and tan bodies. Um, and had I not... Uh, felt really confident about the seller and the history of these dogs, I might have thought that he had sold me a Anatolian Shepherd Labrador cross. But to this day, I remain confident that that was not the case. 
And uh, so we got to live with Mitty and we got to have a litter of puppies, um, which was fantastic. Mitty turned out to be an amazing mother. She had a litter of a dozen pups, um, one of which died, but that left us 11 to sell and to choose one of our own puppies from. The only real problem with Mitty was that she could get out of anything except for electric fence. And she looked at a fence almost as if it was her job to get out of it. So we would find Mitty. Uh, everything would be fine all day long and then in the morning we would find her sitting on the outside of the gate to the goat pen and we honestly don't know what she did all night but we kind of stopped worrying about it because she would be there every stinking morning right back there just waiting to be let back in with the goats uh, so you know we kind of suspected well she's she's getting out she's doing a lap or two of the farm and then she calls it good, and she'd rather be back in with the animals. And uh, that was fine for a while, but then, of course, you guessed it, one morning we found that Mitty had been hit by a car on the road, and she was dead. That was kind of heartbreaking for us. Um, you know, I don't get too sentimental about dogs, especially livestock guardian dogs now, but she was working out so nicely for us that it was, you know, disappointing, wondering what we did wrong. Should we have done something different to keep her in? Um, could we have done something get different to keep her in? And also feeling like we lost an important tool and kind of the foundation for future livestock guardian dogs in our system. And it was uh, an especially hard blow because we were getting ready to expand considerably and we were going to start working a couple of pastures that were farther from home and had you know the potential to have some significant uh, predator issues and we just knew that we were going to have to be growing our capacity with livestock guardian dogs and um, all of a sudden the rug was pulled out from under us uh, we had decided to keep one of Mitty's puppies and we had high hopes for him but strike two in our history with livestock guardian dogs um, her pup who we called zeb just never seemed to get it he was really people oriented from the very beginning uh, we thought we did everything we were supposed to do in getting him to bond with the livestock and be have limited affections for us but he wanted to play he wanted to be with us um, even at two years old, he was still very playful with the livestock, which when you get with small livestock, that ends up being pretty damaging. Um, and he did some damage to a large lamb that we had purchased specifically just to hang out with Zeb. Um, we, we'd actually purchased a couple of large ewe lambs right at about a year old just for the purpose of bonding with Zeb. And uh, Zeb, you know, he, he did some damage to that lamb to the point where we had to euthanize the lamb. You know, and this is where I think some of the challenges lie with livestock guardian dogs. And I'm not sure everybody's honest about this or they have uh, selective memories. We can talk all we want about how many lambs and kids that 
a livestock guardian dog might save on your farm and therefore it produces a lot of extra revenue for you. But our experience with livestock guardian dogs so far, if we're going to be perfectly honest, has been that they've cost us quite a bit of money in terms of not only dog food and vaccinations and that sort of thing, but also in stress and hassle and worry and in that the literal loss of livestock. And that is really demoralizing, especially when we're talking about, you know, the the well-being of animals. Nobody wants to see that happen. No one wants to see an animal attacked um, or played with so vigorously that you have to euthanize the animal. So that also was terribly discouraging. So uh, we lost Mitty. We had to give up Mitty's pup. Now, fortunately, and I don't think that this is this is probably somewhat unusual. Fortunately, Zeb was loved people so much that he is making somebody a great pet right now, and we were able to rehome him. So that was very fortunate. I think if we had to euthanize Zeb just because he didn't have a place as a livestock guardian dog on our farm, um, I, boy, I might have just called it quits right there uh, on the livestock guardian dog idea. But fortunately, we were able to get him uh, home, and we moved on from there. Next, we came across a dog named Nico. He was a three-year-old Maremma, and he was being sold by a uh, farm that was getting out of sheep. And um, I really was skeptical about it because I thought, you know, who would sell a dog for a few hundred dollars if it really was working well as a guardian? And if it really had been bonded to those sheep and um, was doing what it's supposed to do. But we took a risk on Nico. Um, he came, you know, from a pedigree perspective, which I don't always, you know, care a lot about. But he had a good pedigree. He came from a reputable breeder. And um, the previous owner pr probably spent a good deal of money on Nico as a puppy. We took Nico in, and um, boy, did he work out well. I, I would clone Nico a hundred times if I could. He is just terrific. He's um, he is a barky dog, which I think is, you know, fairly typical or said to be fairly typical of Maremmas. He barks at everything all the time, and doesn't stop barking very easily. Um, but in our situation where we have coyotes um, that are not terribly aggressive and we have perhaps some stray dogs and uh, eagles and vultures and that sort of thing, I think a barky dog's okay. And we're not close to any neighbor, so it hasn't been an issue yet. But Nico sticks with the herd really well. We've had cases where all the sheep were out, but uh, we use I mentioned we use a lot of electric netting. And, um, you know, all the sheep or goats have been out before and the fence trampled. And Nico is either right there with the animals wherever they go, or he is still sitting behind the electric fence, even though the fence is trampled to the ground. So we've been really pleased with Nico. Um, he is a neutered male. And so his lineage is not going to carry on at all on our farm, uh, which is a bit disappointing. Um, because ultimately, I do think that we need to be heading toward our own breeding program here on our farm. I think that that's the only way to get a good, steady supply of reliable livestock guardian dogs. 
uh, is to have your own program. And in the future, I'd love to have a guest on this podcast just to chat about that, you know, the, the pros and cons of breeding. I am aware that as I say this, that there are people out there saying, no, don't get into breeding. Uh, everybody thinks they want to breed their dogs and a, their dogs really aren't that great to begin with. And B, um, you don't know what you're getting into. Um, I totally understand that. Believe me, I would be wide open to hearing, um, some experts tell me that I would take their opinions under advisement, but I do think that if we're going to have the right number of dogs at the right stage of their lives, when we need them, I just don't know that we can avoid um, having our own litters here on the farm. So that kind of brings us, no, that doesn't bring us all the way up to speed yet. I have to tell you about June. Uh, June is about a year old. She is a Karakachan and uh, we bought her as a pup from Sherry Nolden. You can hear from Sherry Nolden in episode 29. Um, and back in episode 25, we have a fuller description about the Karakachan as a breed. Um, we have been pleased with June. We think she offers a lot of promise, but she is at that age, maybe coming out of that age. She's just a little over a year old, and it's that age where you've got like a, a f really big dog in the body of a Pardon me. Let's say that again. A a really teenage brain or puppy brain in the body of a really big dog. And I think we're coming out of it. She has never put her teeth on an animal, but she does like to play a lot. She's And she is fast and she is athletic and she is very intense. So when she goes about playing with a goat or playing with a sheep, she is all in and they don't always want a part of it. And so um, I, I'm crossing my fingers that we're almost through that stage. S things seem to be getting better recently. She's never done any tooth damage to any animal, but she will, she, she has had to be corrected many times about chasing and to just be calm. Like just getting her calm and matured out is where we're at right now. I think we're making progress and she's going to turn out. I will say this breed is not laid back. She is, um, or at least June, to the extent that she's a representative of the Karakachan breed. She is intense. Um, not intense in a sharp or aggressive way. Like she's, you know, really bitey or aggressive towards strangers but she is she just does everything full speed all the time and one thing you'll note in episode 25 is that we talked about how at least a large number of the specimens of the Karakachan breed are smaller than most livestock guardian dogs and June appears to be that she will be a little bit smaller than our Marema for example but that leaves her faster and quicker and yet quite massive at the same time. And so um, I've had moments when I'm worried about the health of my knees when I'm out walking around June. Because as I mentioned, she goes at everything like a torpedo. And uh, we're hoping she's going to come out of that. And I'm fairly optimistic that she will. 
how she turns out as an adult, we don't know yet. And that will be a big factor, of course, in whether I would go back to the Karakachan breed or not. Now we are up to speed and current. Um, I mentioned puppies at the beginning of this podcast. We got a pair of puppies from Greg Christensen's farm um, about six weeks ago, maybe eight weeks ago. They are, as with all the dogs on Greg's farm, they are some cross of Anatolian and Akbash primarily, probably with at least a couple of other livestock guardian dog breeds mixed in there way back in the history. But um, I think to, for the most part, most most of the genetics in Greg's dogs would be Anatolian and Akbash. And these two dogs look to be, they, they look more like Akbash than they do Anatolian Shepherds. You know, they're fairly solid colored the color of a yellow Labrador retriever. Um, and uh, Greg happened to have two litters on the ground at the same time. And so I asked for a male and a female from each litter, just in case they both turn out splendidly and I decide that we want to breed. Um, we have that option open to us. So far, I am really, really pleased with these puppies. They are mellow and calm. Um, they are very interested in me. They want to follow me around when I'm in the goat pen, but then that's kind of the end of it. Uh, they're not all over my legs. Uh, they don't want to be in my lap. Um, they'll follow me everywhere, but if I turn around and reach out my hand, they'll plop down on their butt and, and study me. Um, not retreat, not act shy, uh, but they want to give it an extra thought. It's like, I want your attention. I want your attention. I want your attention. Look at me, look at me, look at me. And then when you do, they're like, hmm, I'm not so sure. So to me, that's a really good sign. Um, in my limited experience with livestock guardian dogs, I want dogs that are friendly and well-conditioned to people, but I want them to be the tiniest bit suspicious um, and, and give it a second thought when I turn around and start walking toward them. So, you know, this, of course, is not the time to evaluate the dogs um, at this puppy stage. Uh, all we can do is, is keep them with livestock and watch for any corrections that need to be made and wait. The real test, I think, is in that like eight months to, oh, eight months to 18 months stage. Um, I think I've said it on this podcast before, but if I we're going to try to market dogs. If I were going to put my own unique branding on livestock guardian dogs, I would want to try to raise dogs that just genetically matured quickly in their brains. Uh, you know, they just got to a stage where they could be trusted with livestock as early on as possible. So I'm crossing my fingers for these puppies. We'll see what happens. But so far, I'm quite pleased with them. Um, I should mention here that Greg has pointed out that dogs on his farm are tools and he doesn't give them names. And I take much the same approach, but there's a limit, there's a practical limit to the name thing. <laughs> I called the veterinarian because here in Iowa, a rabies vaccine has to be administered by a vet. So I called to get that set up and as 
I was on the phone, it occurred to me, I don't have names for these dogs and the receptionist at the vet office is gonna need names. So, farm dog audience, I need names for a male-female pair of dogs. Go back in history, search your movie references, see what kinds of uh, male-female pair names you can come up with, but let me put a couple of limitations on that. I have a, Sam, a son, Jack, and I have a son, Sam. So I'm not going to use either of those names on a dog. So uh, Jack and Diane are already ruled out, as well as several other Sam pairs. So send me your best recommendations, because so far what, I, what we're calling these dogs is girl and boy, and I think we can do better than that. So that's my update on uh, livestock guardian dogs here on the farm. Let me just uh, mention that we are a very spread out farm. We are growing in a way that makes our farm a little bit like Greg Christensen's down there in Kansas in that we're going to have lots of small pastures spread out. Um, and so it will mean that we probably will have more dogs than if we could just keep the whole mob of sheep and goats together in a couple of places. Uh, we're going to need two dogs at each location, so we are expecting to grow the number of livestock guardian dogs we have, and um, we're just trying to cross our fingers that we, despite our rough start to livestock guardian dogs, that we have a higher percentage of them working out as we go forward into the future of our farm. Um, Many of you have heard know my dog Sweets because we've talked about Sweets here on the podcast many times. Sweets is a oh about a four and a half year old Kelpie um, that I got uh, already trained or at least very well started. And even, we do a lot of um, small paddock rotations with our goats and sheep, so we don't do huge gathers. But just yesterday, we had to move 200 ewes and their lambs across our pasture back to the building so that we could give a vaccination. And so even in our, our operation where we're typically moving animals from one small paddock to uh, an adjacent paddock right next door and on and on and on, um, I am seeing the need for a dog. And... Uh, that's kind of what initiated getting sweets in the first place was that a stock dog was going to be necessary as we grew. I'm going to come back to sweets, but let me also say um, I had a dog named Dolly. She died at 14 years old about five years ago. And Dolly was a crossbred Australian Shepherd of some sort. The owners, I, she was five when I got her. The previous owners had... Um, had given her some training, some professional training, at least a handful of lessons, because they saw some potential in her. When I arrived to take a look at Dolly, um, she was staked in the front yard of a farmhouse, and there were a ha handful of Icelandic sheep in a pasture out back. And I didn't, I did not have high hopes when I saw that. The owner put Dolly on a leash and we walked out to that pasture with a handful of Icelandic sheep that were on the far end of the pasture pasture and um, the owner even was trying to manage my expectations as we walked out there 
and he took Dolly off of the leash and didn't even give a command, but just let go of her. And Dolly ran to the far end of that pasture and gathered those Icelandic sheep and came, brought them back to us at light speed. And the, I was pretty impressed. And the owner looked at me almost like he was shocked. And he, he actually said these words, that was almost an outrun, wasn't it? <laughs> and so it was clear that, um, that was not typical for Dolly, but she kind of won me over that day. So I bought Dolly and brought her home. And I like to say that Dolly was always better than no dog, but just barely. And, uh, she got thumped by a goat once or twice. And, um, she, she was, it was an old dog, new trick sort of thing too, where she really wasn't going to take to training very well. I, uh, was humbled by Dolly in, in the fact that I could teach her nothing. Um, even though I thought of myself as something of a dog trainer. So Dolly was a fantastic farm dog and Dolly did in fact have plenty of instinct. Um, I mentioned she was an Australian shepherd cross. I think she might've been crossed with border collie, but who knows? Um, at the same time, I had a big running bird dog. Uh, she was a German wire haired pointer. And so when I let those two dogs out of the kennel, these dogs got along great. You could put them in the same kennel together. You could have them laying out in the yard together. They were fantastic. But when I let them out of the kennel, my bird dog wanted to run for the horizon looking for birds. And guess what the herding dog wanted to do? She wanted to keep the bird dog from running to the horizon looking for birds. So Dolly would circle the bird dog, chase down the bird dog, circle her, and try to stop her. And that was the last thing that my bird dog wanted. And they got in some terrible, terrible, terrible fights because of that. Um, so I got to see what was, you know, some indications of what to look for in a, in a herding dog and a stock dog. I got just a taste of like what could be if I got a dog from good genetics and got some help with the training. And, uh, so, you know, a few years later, then as our herd had grown quite a bit, I decided it was time, uh, we needed to, to start looking for a stock dog. I started doing all sorts of research including collecting some email addresses and phone numbers. And I thought, you know what, if I'm going to have all these conversations, we might as well record them. And that was how the farm dog podcast started. So that brings us up to today. And you know all about my dog history at this point. Um, and you know about what my farm is like. Let me just throw in a few more tidbits on that. We've got about 200 ewes with their current lamb crop. We've got, I've here at home, I have about 65 uh, adult nannies and their whole kid crop. So all told, you know, that's something like, oh, 400, 500 animals um, in, and they're often in different locations. And so, you know, we're still learning what kind of dogs do we need? How do we get the dogs we need? Is it best to raise them from pups? Is it best to go buy them as adults? Um, and that goes for uh, sweets too. You know, that was a big part of the decision uh, back when I was looking for that first stock dog. 
do I just get a puppy? Um, or do I get an adult dog, both because I don't know anything about stock dogs or stock dog training, and because an adult dog that's been well-trained has proven that it has some instinct and I could put it to work quickly. I chose, obviously, to go with the adult dog on the advice of lots of people, including people who have shared that advice here on this show. I think that is excellent advice, and I would extend the same advice to most other people too. But looking back on it and knowing what I have now with sweets, I wish I had had more confidence in myself to get a puppy. Um, let me explain that a little more. So again, I'm not rejecting all of that advice. I just think that that advice maybe is meant for somebody who has no working dog training experience and isn't going to do the depth of research that my personality drives me to do. And so I wish I had had a little more self-confidence. Um, and maybe if at that time I had already established a relationship with a couple of local trainers and I knew that I had them to fall back on, I would have started with a puppy. But when, when at that point I didn't have that and I wasn't confident I'd be able to find that locally. Did I mention that Iowa is mostly corn and beans, very little pasture land, and so therefore very little uh, livestock on range? And definitely that's the case here where I live in central Iowa. So um, I went the route of getting a trained dog. And here's what I've learned, and here's a status update on sweets so far. I am very frustrated with sweets right now. I'll just be perfectly straight with you all about that. Sweet seems to have lost most interest in stock, and I'm searching my memory to, to put a, a point in time on that to see if there's something I did, and I can't find it. Um, she will get engaged on breakaway animals, and that's about it. So, so a single you or you and a lamb that breaks away from the flock um, as we're moving them, that engages her. Otherwise, she's just walking around with me. Um, commands have kind of gone out the window. And I, I know that Kelpies are not known for wanting to be micromanaged. They don't take direction super well. But we're even talking about a comeback command or a recall command. And that that's she's just gotten even stubborn about that. So... She's got me terribly frustrated right now. She's a super nice dog. Um, she's great with people. She jumps in the truck with me. We can go anywhere. We can be good buddies. At least there's the potential for that. But right now, she's not doing any work. And this, is, this has been pretty frustrating for me. Um, so uh, my plan is now we're just going to go back to yard work. And we're going to do some simple obedience stuff we're going to do some recall stuff and it did cross my mind that perhaps she has she just needs boy this is going to sound wrong i don't mean it to sound the way it's going to sound but she just needs to know who's boss but i don't mean that in like a force sort of way but i just need to be working in closer situations with her so that she responds to commands right away and fully. 
um, and just kind of get our relationship straightened out a little bit. It has been really interesting with Sweets since I, every other dog I've had, other than Nico, who is a livestock guarding dog, he lives most of his life with the livestock. Every other dog I've had, I've raised from a puppy. Um, and boy, that's not the case with Dolly, however, but I had kind of the same problems with Dolly. I never really felt bonded to her, um, that we had a connection. Now, she was a great dog too, and she lived a terrific life on the farm, and that was fine, uh, but she was mostly a pet. And I kind of feel the same thing with Sweets, that like we are just not on the same wavelength. And I don't know what I have to do to kind of rewind that and get that connection. I had that connection with the puppies I raised. And so there's this part of me that thinks I missed out on something important um, that I'm struggling to get back because I bought an adult dog. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. We'll just see where that goes. I think we're, like I said, we're just going to dial it in. We're going to work in close quarters. We're just going to work on that relationship thing and see if it can be dialed back up to working stock or not. Um, just to give you an idea of what our farm looks like, we have sheep and goats in a, in a kind of dry lot situation, you know, where, where animals come and go all the time and where we keep our goat kids until they're weaned and that sort of thing. And we'll have, you know, silly little goat kids squeezing through the fence and standing outside in the lawn right outside of Sweet's kennel. And I can let her out and she immediately turns the corner and goes looking for rabbits to chase and acts like the goat kid is not even there. And when I first got sweets, that was not the case. She was pretty intent uh, whenever there was stock around. So yeah, feeling really challenged by that right now. Um, I'm not giving up on sweets. Sweets is not going to somebody else's home. But I do feel like at this point, I need to be looking for another stock dog. Sweets is not the answer. Um, and that makes me think, boy, if that's, let me, revert, let me rewind a little bit. I think that things might click in with Sweets again if she was working with another dog. If there was another dog that was really intent on stock, um, I think Sweets would play that game, you know. Uh, if they were working together. But that puts me back in the position of getting another adult dog, a trained dog or a started dog as opposed to a pup. And I'm kind of feeling the pull toward a puppy right now. Uh, but if I get a puppy, we are years away <laughs> from having a useful dog on the farm. So a little bit stuck, uh, not knowing for sure what to do. Um, I guess I could go the route of both. I could get a started dog and a puppy and my wife would kill me. So I don't think we're going to go that route. Uh, we've also, like I said, just added two new livestock guardian dog puppies. We have a teenager livestock guardian dog. Um, things are getting a little crazy around here. So uh, my next dog decision has to be a thoughtful one. Um, I'd also like to get another bird dog soon. So. Lots of things happening um, and lots of indecision. And so I hope that gives you an idea of where we're at. If you have comments on uh, sweets or comments about whether to get into breeding, um, 
thoughts on one breed versus another, a livestock guardian dog. I'd love to hear those things. Or if you just have some questions about my observations and our experiences with dogs, uh, please don't hesitate. You can find us at farmdogpodcast.com anytime you want. There is a place to contact us there. Uh, You can even leave us a voicemail. So please do that. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Farm Dog. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please subscribe, leave us a positive review, and tell someone about it. Thanks. Thanks.